Hello and welcome to our 2018 Formula One season review. I'm Joe Dunn, editor of Motorsport magazine, and I'm joined today by a podium of talent. In our office, we have Simon Aaron and Rob Ladbrook. Hello both. Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. And joining us remotely via the magic of Skype is Mark Hughes, our Grand Prix editor. Hello, Mark. Hello. Today, we're going to be looking back on the 2018 season and trying to answer some of the key questions about what happened and why. Uh, we'll be helped by dozens of questions from our readers who have sent them in via our website. But I think I'd like to, uh, to start by asking everyone to cast their minds back to March in Melbourne uh, and the start of the season. Um, it, it seemed to promise so much. I, I know we know how it ended, but, but can you remember those, those early, early few races when there seemed to be so much excitement and anticipation uh, about the season ahead? And, and, and really, what do we think? Did the, did the season deliver on that? Simon? Um, I think we have to bear in mind that Melbourne was... It started promisingly from a championship perspective because a Ferrari won and we kind of got used to Mercedes uh, dominating all and sundry. But that was brought about because of um, Mercedes' team of 5,000 uh, strategists uh, plugged the wrong number in somewhere and um, op opened the door for Ferrari. But even so, I mean, during the first part of the season, I felt very much that it was a proper two-way fight, two mm. top teams, two fantastic cars, two brilliant drivers, and then it kind of fizzled away from sort of August onwards. Yeah, it became a bit more, a bit more, more, more of the same. Um, but Mark, you, you were talking earlier about, about the reasons for that. Um, um, what, what was your kind of overall, how would you sort of sum up the season, if you like? Um, if you divide, it's 21 races, if you divide the season into um, three parts of seven races each, uh, at the two-thirds point, which is, um, I think, um, Monza, by my reckoning, the Ferrari had been the faster car 10 times from 14 races. Um, now, it, there were some errors that meant that didn't translate, um, but that car was comfortably fast enough to have contended or even won the title. Um, it just wasn't being operated very well from a team perspective and um, from a driver perspective, Vettel just made too many errors, and it really is as simple as that, because in terms of performance, even though Mercedes dominated the last third of the season, in terms of performance over the season, and that's like we, we tend to have a present sort of skewed picture of competitiveness because, you know, the last seven races we saw, the Mercedes was, a, in general, the dominant car, so we tend to remember that more than the, 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 the earlier part of the season when it wasn't. Um, but it was easily a competitive enough car to have won the title, uh, certainly contended for it. And it was the, all the more disappointing, therefore, that the, the Ferrari campaign just collapsed. It just it really did, even more so than in 2017 when it did quite a, a parallel story in a way, but um, amplified. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're gonna we'll, we'll come we'll come to Ferrari's implosion um, a bit later on, and there's there's so much to say about it. Um, uh, Mark, I mean, you sort of you you travelled the world really, reporting on on all of these races for uh, for our magazine and and for the website. Um, w w what was your sort of standout feature of, of the season? I mean, was there a single moment or, or, or sort of feeling that that you sort of think will come to define the the the, the 2018 season? 
I think the defining moment probably the the thing that everybody's probably going to look back and remember it for is just that moment in Hockenheim when Seb's nosed the car into the barrier and is banging the steering wheel in frustration, having just crashed out of the lead of the race. And in many ways, that was the 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 the, the fulcrum of the whole season. You know, it's really when the when it just switched. There's a massive point swing, and I, but it's also a huge psychological blow as well. And I don't think it's one they really ever fully recovered from. And I think that's probably the the defining moment. If you have to think of a single image that it sort of tells the the story of the season, it would be that for me. You're, Rob, you're, you're sort of shaking your head and smiling at that. <laughs> what do you? Uh, what, I mean, in sympathy, I think with Seb. Uh, I don't know. I mean, do you remember that that? that Hockenheim you know, disaster really for Ferrari. Pre- pretty much I reckon I agree with Mark that that was probably the moment that the title was lost um, I think that just created that that division that was almost soul destroying to, to the mentality of, of Ferrari being able to take this fight to Lewis when their, their talismanic German had, had gone off in such a not a bizarre but such a strange kind of way it was very unvettel it's not something we've seen from Sebastian very often um, except in 2018 except in 2018 yes thank, <laughs> thank you sir <laughs> but uh, I think it was also a multifaceted moment because a Vettel leading his home race in a Ferrari and under no real pressure other than the challenge of the weather slid off B that opened the door for Lewis who'd started was it 13th 14th but he started yeah. back in midfield after problems in qualifying and it was a you know, fantastic drive by him. So Mercedes got a huge shot of impetus from that, and at the same time, of course, Ferrari yeah, had, had quite the opposite. It's so it was. It's quite telling as well that that whole conspired from a weekend that initially looked terrible for Mercedes and terrible for Lewis after the problems in qualifying starting down the grid um, on the alternate tyre strategy and of course when it started to rain he was on the softer grippier tyres um, and, and suddenly everything conspired and what should have been a Ferrari cakewalk ultimately just swung the Silver Arrows way again. Yeah, the weather played a, a good part in that as a sort of three-race sequence. It, it rescued that race for Hamilton from mid-grid, as you say. Um, it rained in qualifying in Hungary, where in the dry, the Ferrari was easily going to get pole. And all of a sudden, it mixed everything up and gave Hamilton another opportunity, which he took um, to set pole. And um, yeah, again in Spa, he, he set pole on that occasion and didn't win him the race. Um, yeah, he, he had a little bit of a following wind with Luck um, or um, or some higher power because he was standing there as though he'd, he'd, he'd ordered the rain on, on the podium in Hockenheim. <laughs> so maybe there was some some of that, an element of that. Um, yeah. But it, <laughs> other than that, um, it, it was, they won the, the, the title through a, being better, being a better team and Hamilton performing to a higher level. And those two things are interrelated and I don't think you can underestimate that because when you're at the peak of performance and looking to get into that state of mind that all the top competitors need to get into to do their best stuff you're going to much you're going to have much easier access to that if everything around you is working as it should be compared to the guy that's worrying what are they going to do wrong next what's going to happen here am, am I being am I being shafted here what's going on here why are they not got that right why are they putting Kimmy out to 
in the, in the wrong place? Why are they putting me out beside behind a Mercedes that needs a different type? If you're thinking of all those things, you, your head is just not going to be in as good a place. And I think that shouldn't be underestimated. And that's where the, the team performance and the driver performance are very hard to decouple. I also thought it extraordinary that on a day when they most needed Kimi Raikkonen's cooperation, Ferrari mm. informed him on race morning at Monza that, oh, by the way, we're not, he won't be racing for us next year. It's, I yeah, don't think Mercedes would have done that, would they? No, that's they waited till Monday. I mean. <laughs> no, they just absolutely wouldn't. Um, and a, a, what on earth are they getting the number two driver to um, get be the beneficiary of the tow at Monza for, rather than the guy who's chasing the title? And B, once you've got yourself in that awkward mess, why do you tell the driver who you need to help you? Um, then put him into a situation where he was more or less forced to drive for himself rather than the team. So, yeah, just just poor leadership, poor management, brilliant technically, um, probably the best team technically out there at the moment, and that's saying something when you've got competitors like Red Bull and Mercedes, but operationally just awful this year. Um, I suppose you meant, we've mentioned um, Lewis now. It's an opportune moment to, to ask the obvious question about how, how good how good he is. Um, I mean, Mark, I thought your interview with um, Toto Wolf was quite illuminating, where he said that his relationship with Lewis had um, had sort of strengthened and deepened as, as as time had gone on, and, and how mm. you know they'd had their problems in the early days, but now it was mm. stronger than ever. And I suppose you could say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But 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 it seems to be borne out by the facts. I mean, do you think a a how good is is Lewis, and b how good is he with Toto and with Mercedes? How how strong is that partnership? Yeah, I mean, he's in terms of his raw speed, he hasn't found more raw speed that. That that's always been extraordinarily high, you know, since he first came in 11 years ago. Um, but he joins those peaks up much more consistently now. And this season's been his best, I think, because he's, he's achieved a, a more consistently high level. Um, it's probably a good only point to a couple of races where the weekend sort of got away from him. And that's probably uh, a, a trait where if you look through his career, he's always had those weekends where they just he's not quite nailed to set up the car. He's gone off in the wrong direction a little bit and then not got it back quite enough in time for qualifying or the race. He did that maybe in um, uh, China this year, maybe in Canada. Um, that that was it really. And so that's, that's where he's become stronger he's, he's he's lined those things up he's he's um he's working his team um more deeply he's uh, he's got a little core of people engineering people around him that he's pumping for more you know more insight more information all the time and this is just sort of going into a sort of virtuous circle and adding to his own performance and that that environment where he feels supported and not undermined and no longer paranoid either pretty much devoid of the paranoia that was that's always part of any top driver in a, in a pressure situation but it, it's it's largely been dispersed over the years as he's come to trust everyone around him and I think also the replacement of Nico Rosberg with Valtteri Bottas has had a played a big part in that environment um, I don't think there's very much difference, if any, in, in basic speed of Rosberg and Bottas. But Rosberg was much more combative with Hamilton and would deliberately use psychological warfare as, as part of his, his, his armory. 
Um, and Valtteri is just not wired up in that way, and, and it's made for a much more serene environment. So it hasn't really helped Valtteri's career at, at Mercedes, um, but it's it, it's enabled Hamilton to get to a more consistently high level than he was achieving when Rosberg was there. And I think it's partly that the team, partly Lewis maturing, partly that relationship maturing, and partly um, a less combustible environment. Yeah, but I, I thought he looked more complete in 2018 than mm. at, at any time in his, yeah. it been maybe even in his racing career. I mean, I watched him in his junior, in the junior categories too. I mean, yeah. as you say, the, the the raw speed has always, 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 always been there. But I mean, he's always had peaks and troughs in his previous Formula One seasons. Not so mm. many troughs, but they've always been there. And I just thought yeah. he looked in 2018. He looked uh, he looked dynamite from start to finish, pretty much. He yeah. did look in incredibly composed for the vast majority of the season. I mean, before, especially when we had the Rosberg thing, um, a lot of people, while Lewis is a very mentally strong driver, he, he would tend to either overcompensate or get frustrated on the radio. Or And we, we kind of saw or heard hardly anything um, of that this year. We had a very, so even when things went wrong in qualifying, there was no blaming, there was no social media kind of outbursts. It, it was very just controlled. It was like, okay, lads, let's get on with this and hold this back. And he did it time and time again. It was just a very controlled performance from start to finish. Made it mm. look so easy and natural. It, it, it's funny um, uh, that, that you say that, he, that the paranoia had gone, Mark. I mean, he, he did seem to, to my eyes, um, has, he's almost detached himself from the circus that's going around it. And it's almost like he's this very still calm in the middle of a storm, if you want to put it like that. He doesn't seem affected by anything that's been going on, whether that's in the media or in the paddock. Uh, I just wonder, what, 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 what's his, how do you find him in the paddock and, and on, on race weekends when, when you kind of, your paths cross and you come, up, you come across him in press conferences and such, such like? He's, um, you're right, he's, he's quite a new serenity this year. Um, he's obviously the number one focus of attention in, in that paddock, uh, in, in a paddock that's full of high-profile people. Um, wow. So his usual manner is headphones on, head down, avoid eye contact, just you know, keep walking to where you've got to be. Um, but in the downtime, after all the commitments are finished, and you're just there with them, if you're doing an interview with them, and you you, you know you you have a an understanding, um, he's he's very very chilled, very articulate, uh, very thoughtful, um, not at all like uh, the, the the image might suggest the the, the you know the. The showman, the showman side mm. of his persona might suggest. It's fascinating and a, and a fascinating character and, 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 you know, five world championships. I mean, a, a great, great driver. Um, let's, let's, let's dive into some reader questions because um, we've, had, we've had dozens of them. They've all been submitted via, uh, via our website. Um, and I, I think the, probably the easiest way of doing it is, is, is almost kind of splitting them off into, um, into in, uh, under sort of team headings. So if we, if we start with Ferrari, and I'll start with a question from uh, uh, Pratik uh, Palsel. Um, uh, I'm going to fall victim of a, of a, of a Simpsons spoof name here aren't I, I can tell um, 
Uh, and he says, uh, can you enlighten us uh, to exactly what happened uh, at Ferrari post Marchioni? We, we've had a couple of questions um, talking about Sergio Marchioni and his untimely death and, and, and how that affected the team. And Mark, mm. I know you were very close to the story. Um, maybe, well, start off with, with, with that question and re really what, what happened and, and how much of a shock was it when it happened? Well, it was a total shock. Um, you know, it, it, subsequently we found out he'd, he'd been ill for a couple of years, but had kept it from even even these uh, closest colleagues. Um, so it was um, a shock. Uh, there's no question of that. Um, but he, um, I think, uh, had the expectation of living several years, you know, further to come, and he was uh, seemed to have planned. Uh, for that to be the case, um, Ferrari, as I touched on earlier on, I thought was operationally very weak but technically very strong, and I think he'd identified that same thing. Um, and his uh, plan was to, um, uh, so we are led to understand, was to uh, relieve um, Maurizio uh, Arriva Bene of the team principal role and promote Mattia Bonato. That was the plan for 2019, but then, of course, uh, Marchioni died um, So without that having gone through. So that left those two particular people in a very awkward position, and it, it's one that they're, they're still in. Um, and I think until that's really, that is clarified, I, I find it difficult to envisage how the team is going to move forward and, and, and progress. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it on, on a day-to-day -day basis, it wouldn't have changed a great deal. The, the team was already operationally shaking and continued to be. Um, glaring errors like the, those that were made at Monza probably wouldn't have happened, but it, 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 it's, it still wasn't an operationally great team um so i don't think much changed on a day-to-day -day level but um it, it's left the team in a in a sort of state of limbo as to what it what it does next and do you think sort of um uh, i mean obviously it would shake any team but do you, do you think uh, an event like that had affected ferrari more acutely than, than other teams given its its makeup perhaps i mean um Stefano Domenicali, the, the old um, team manager there, was uh, a, a terrific guy. And he, he always used to say that it was his impression that the team felt blows um, more acutely than, uh, say, more, more Anglo-Saxon teams. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's possible. But um, I think also when you get when you get it going in the upwards direction, it rises up so fast. And um, I think we've seen that as well. You know, with the, the transformation from 16 to 17 was, was um, amazing, behold. Um, so I think, yes, it works both ways. It's like a sort of um, uh, car, an engine with um, not much flywheel effect compared to one with a heavy flywheel. Okay. Um, 
It's a, a, a slightly mischievous question here from, from Gav, uh, 1989, uh, who asks, uh, when Daniel Ricciardo beat Vettel in 2014, he was able to run to Ferrari. If Charles Leclerc beats Sebastian Vettel next year and there are no realistic seats available at Mercedes or Red Bull, um, uh, what uh, is Vettel going to do? Which team is he going to run to for 2020? Um, there seems to be quite a few assumptions there, but I suppose the underlying... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you go with all the Gav's assumptions, <laughs> which I'm not sure I, I would, but if you went, I don't, I think if, if that turned out to be the situation, I don't think he would um, go and drive for any, any anyone other than the top three teams. So, yeah, he would just... Uh, Go and do something else with his life would be my guess. Um, I don't think it's a given that he will have uh, a weak season next year. I think uh, he's got a lot on his plate, a lot to sort out, um, but it's not a given. He's an extraordinary driver, he's an extraordinary competitor. Um, and if he has a strong season and uh, has the, the appetite for it again, then yeah, you, what what happens at Red Bull in the future, for example? Um, could we see him back at Red Bull? It's not it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. Is there there's a secondary point I as well? Did um, is there any truth to the rumor that um, Sebastian vetoed Ricciardo, um, as, as some people had speculated? No, Do you, had you got any inside knowledge on that, Mark? Not as I understand it, this time around, the contract that he entered into start of last year. Um, was not as um, loaded in his favour, I believe, as the previous one. Um, so although the previous one may have uh, given him veto, I don't think this one did, no. Right, right. Um, uh, Simon, maybe if I could just bring you in. I know we talked about the German Grand Prix here, but um, uh, another reader has written in, um, Stephen, Stephen Pratter. Um, uh, uh, was the season lost as a result of that accident? Um, well, I think we've touched upon that previously, but it was, I think, psychologi- it was a psychological turning point. I mean, clearly, mathematically, it wasn't lost. Um, there was, you know, well, Seb was still leading after Hockenheim, wasn't he? But, he, um, but it was a, there, was a, there was a huge mathematical shift. It's a 32-point yeah, swing. Yeah, a big, big point swing, as Mark says. And um, I think it was psychological more than, more than anything else. And I think we saw the effects of that not in every race that followed, because obviously he won in Belgium, but in several of the races that followed, you know, driving errors by Seb or tactical errors by the team, it was almost like they were all trying too hard to to atone for some of the things they'd, they'd just done, and it just snowballed. Yeah, and I think that's a really that's crucial, isn't it, at that point, that, that actually if you make mistakes, then it, it's not making, it, it's trying to make up for that mistake that causes future mistakes, if that, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you're kind of trying to overcompensate, don't you? Which, which seemed to be something that afflicted Ferrari uh, uh, after, after Germany. I've, I've got a question, actually. Um, I'm just wondering if all of, the, um, all of the people who thought Lewis was stupid to leave McLaren at the end of 2012 still think the same thing. <laughs> what do you reckon? We should we should have a poll on our website, Mark. What do you think he thinks? <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to be right in hindsight, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Was it was it a, a, um, a brilliant decision or was it a lucky decision? That would probably be a better question. It would, yes. We lost Daniel Ricciardo in four years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it as I don't see Daniel's move as the equivalent of that one. Um, 
Um, well, speak, speaking of Hamilton and, and moving on to, to, to Mercedes, um, uh, Valentin Radukin um, has asked us, um, uh, is Hamilton, uh, is he now in the top 10 all-time greatest Formula One drivers? Now, uh, from, he's claiming from, from 46 to 2018. Um, uh, this is a question, obviously, that people can argue about at their leisure um, uh, down, down the pub tonight. But, uh, I mean, for the record, wh where, where do we put him? Um, um, Rob, wh where do you put Lewis now? Um, this one's not a loaded question at all, is it? Um, <laughs> we, we always hear about this. I, end of the day, it's, I believe it's impossible to, to gauge a, a Formula One driver from the 50s and 60s against someone in the... It's a different sport now. It's a different formula now. Yeah. Um, statistically, absolutely, Lewis is up there. Um, he, did, he did things that were almost superhuman uh, around this this season I mean his qualifying lap at Singapore just being kind of one of the ones I mean if you'd stuck a shaky camera on that it could have been centre at Monaco just in the evening <laughs> but um, I definitely yeah. I definitely yeah. put him up there um, but once again it's it's a loaded comparison in uh, my mind I mean I, I, I wouldn't put a number on it I just I mean, he is one of the all-time greats that's beyond question if I was starting my own Grand Prix team tomorrow and I could pick any two drivers from 1894 to the present day uh, Tazio Nuvolari would be the first pick and the second, I'd have to have a long, hard thing. But Lewis would be Lewis would be on the list of possibles. Mm. Yeah, that'd be quite formidable, wouldn't it? Nuvolari <laughs> and, and Hamilton. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark, I'm afraid I'm going to have to put the same question to you. <laughs> well, uh, Simon's answer is ridiculous. He want, he's, his lead driver would be like 110 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's the downside. I think oh, I still yeah. think he'd be quick, mind. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, yeah, I would say he's probably in the top ten uh, if you're going Formula One. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, you'd, you'd you'd struggle to find, you know, nine, ten, ten names to to push him out of that top ten, wouldn't you? Um, so yes, I'd say he's definitely in the top ten as as to what position. Well, you can you can just argue about that. In your own heads, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think our readers probably probably will. Um, uh, Patrick Down asks uh, whether we think that Hamilton would have won the title if he had been at Ferrari this year. Yes. Even given Ferrari, as we've just spoken about Ferrari's internal problems, you think Hamilton would have been strong yeah. enough? I don't to think he would as perform. I don't think he would have performed as impressively as he did. But I don't think he would have given a hundred points away in the way that Vettel did. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with that. I, 100%. I, I, the difference this year, I think, has been because Mercedes has made some errors as well. Granted, Ferrari's made some bigger ones, but the the different factor this year was Lewis's human performance. He mm. was just stellar. Yeah, yeah. Did 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 Lewis get involved in any first lap skirmishes this year? I'm struggling to think of any. Whereas Seb seemed to do it every other weekend in the second half of the year. No, no I don't I think he did. Can't think of mm. one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I, th I think I think I think you probably hit the nail on the head, actually, Rob. I mean, I I, I think that um, even even g perhaps you could argue, I suppose, that that not, that the internal problems wouldn't have been so pronounced had Lewis been the lead driver. In other words, had he sort of uh, cast his calmness and his leadership and his strength of character and had that infused the rest of the team around him, then those problems wouldn't have surfaced in the first place. Um, leaving aside his his, his, his driving ability. Um, um, 
let's move on to some, some more questions. We're go down to Red Bull now. Um, and uh, 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 Va uh, Valent Valentin Raducan. Um, Ferrari has a small advantage over Mercedes in terms of ultimate power output. Um, but how far behind was Honda uh, in its latest spec? Um, Mark, maybe I could throw that one to you. Uh, yeah, they were reckoned on, on peak power. It's, it's very misleading peak power with the, these hybrid engines because it's, a, it's more to do with how long it, the, the best part and what, the, what the, the torque curve and how well they deploy the elect, electrical energy and for how long and stuff like that. But on, just as a, a sort of rule of thumb, Measure Honda were believed to be about 50 horsepower down on Ferrari by the at the, at the end of the year, which was um, the the closed up from the beginning of the year, um, and were believed to have edged ahead of Renault by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Tony Chan here, a question from Tony Chan. Uh, one question on the young driver development programs. Uh, in 2014, uh, Max Verstappen was approached by both Red Bull as well as Mercedes. Do you believe Max would have been closer to the World Championship than he is now uh, had he chosen uh, Mercedes? Um, again, Mark, what do you think? Uh, it's, it's speculative, I know, but um, what, what do you think? Uh, well, he would have had to have um, been slugging it out with uh, Lewis. Uh, yeah. So I suppose a more pertinent question would be whether Lewis would have won if Max had been. Uh, yeah, yeah I guess you know there would have. Um, it would have been a fascinating contest to see. Um, but yeah, I think it's. I'd, pref I'd prefer to see them in different teams. I'd prefer to see them go going at it from different teams, and it would be fantastic if Honda made enough pro progress that uh, Red Bull could fight for wins. Uh, next year on merit uh, and then we, then we would see some classic Hamilton Verstappen dices I'm sure yes um, and th again there was a question here from uh, Samir um, talking about the, the disparity between the two Red Bulls towards the end of the season and, and asking whether whether that was that was down to luck or whether that late late season reliability was 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 down to something else oh, I don't think you can um, read anything suspicious in it it's just Look, I mean, it's just waves of luck. I mean, the, there was a period I think last year where Verstappen couldn't, you know, couldn't get the thing to finish, um, no matter what he did. Uh, it just, it just turns. Just, you know, when you when you have a um, a car that's fundamentally unreliable, which it, it was, um, these things can just sort of bite you at random, and, and it's not that unusual for for the randomness to fall one way. For it's just like tossing a coin if you throw. It's you know if you if you throw five heads in a row, it's not it's not extraordinary, is it? It's just you know it'll balance out, and I think that's all we, all you were saying. I don't think there's anything um, suspicious about it particularly. I always struggle to comprehend these conspiracy theories when a driver starts to have a, a little bit of a bad run and people say oh well you know Max's car's running fine and Daniel's isn't I mean what sense would it mm. make for a team to sabotage its own driver in a time when championship points are worth so much and there's millions of pounds on, on the table and not only that there's three or four hundred staff that are working flat out back at the yeah. thing to see a car stop mm -hmm. due to nefarious means I mean it's, it, I can never buy in too much to them well, uh, I think no one ever said that conspiracy theories had a, had a reason. <laughs> I think by they are fun, though. They, they are fun. <laughs> they um, uh, moving on. Oh, there's a fascinating question here from Jacob. 
um, who asks about Haas and uh, uh, essentially asking uh, asking how good they are for I mean bang for buck. Uh, Mark, we we did a story about about Haas and um, mm. uh, I mean, what do you think? Are they how well have they performed? Will they be happy with their performance this year? I think they're going to be happy because they've made great progress and they were. You know, if we look at the field, which it's, it's sad that we have to do it, but if we look at the field in terms of Class A, which is the top three teams, and in Class B, uh, they've probably had, on balance, the fastest car in Class B, although they didn't quite win that mini championship. They were, they were in contention for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that yeah, they've done well. They've not probably converted the speed of their car to points as effectively as, as say, Renault have, have done. But... Um, yeah, they're a much smaller team, so they, you know, it's a completely different model to every other team. You know, it benefits from the resource of a much bigger team, Ferrari, um, and it's, you know, you can see why that model is getting other independent teams so stirred up because it's uh, it's 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 outperforming many of them, um, and you can see how it's doing it. You can, you can understand how it would do that given, given uh, the resources that go into that car they, 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 that have been created. Those resources have been put in place for something else entirely, but they, they're still unleashed upon that car. And that's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a brilliant car and it's been well run. And it's, um, yeah, I think it only won three times the, the the class between Magnussen and Grosjean uh, I think they only won three times which is probably a uh, just a reflection of the, the the size of the team and they, they, they got themselves into a few difficulties with um, things that were a function of not having enough people um, but yeah they're they're they're, they're um, a very uh, interesting addition to the grid, but you can absolutely see why the likes of Williams and McLaren are, um, are you know, getting quite aerated about it. And d- does the model need to be changed? I do wonder if that sets a good precedent or a dangerous precedent for the mm-hmm. kind of future. Because if you can go off and essentially buy a B-spec Ferrari, or in this case, an H-spec Ferrari, mm-hmm. if you like, um, and come straight in, be one of the well, the youngest team on the grid. Um, and be fighting with with the big names that are still struggling to do it themselves. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Surely it's it's a good thing on one way that you can it's shown you can come into Formula One and be competitive if you've got the right people around you. But surely it doesn't do a huge amount to the kind of you know the heritage of the garage easters days that we all like to romanticise about. But back in those days, the heritage days of the garage easters, you could go anyone could go and buy a March, a Cosworth engine, a Hewland FG two hundred gearbox, and you know, with a few quid, relatively speaking, run a run a Formula One operation, and you saw. Go, I mean, people when I know Hesketh built their own car, but it, people like that coming in, and at the time, I know I know you're too young to have have been there. Mark and I aren't, but it it did add certainly to me that those days when it was more accessible and people could do things. And I understand the the mentality of the likes of Williams and McLaren in the current era, but I I really liked it when a team could buy a second-hand kit and run a Brabham or a Tyrrell or something and do a decent job. Yeah, but when you were running, you know, a couple of hundred thousand, a budget of a couple of hundred thousand rather oh, yeah, than a couple of hundred million. Yeah. And um, so the, you know, the gap between an entity like 
Ferrari and a, and a privateer was wasn't anything like as big as it is now. Um, so it's yeah, it, it it was a it was a nice period of time, but I think um, something does need to be tweaked a little bit in what constitutes uh, a constructor. Um, speaking of, of Williams, we've got a, a punchy question from Anthony Jenkins here saying, or asking, can the dire state of Team Williams be attributed to Claire Williams's leadership? If not, where does the buck stop? Um, I think that's slightly unfair, but but Mark, <laughs> maybe you could, what's yeah, happening with Williams and where do they go from here? It's in a bit of turmoil at the moment, um, but I don't think there's any, it would take anything radical to return it to respectability and um yeah i claire given that she she inherited that role when she was very inexperienced i'm sure that's played a part in that um she's had a strong commercial guide in hand from michael driscoll um but technically it needs to be much stronger and this uh, technical management team that's there now is already probably in the last chance saloon, and I think probably Claire understands all this. Um, but it's you know it's it's a it's a hard it's a steep learning curve. You, you mentioned Class A and Class B before. Were Williams and McLaren in Class C? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, you have it's to reclassify it. If it like, I don't know the Premiership in if, if McLaren and. Uh, sorry, if Mercedes and Ferrari are Premiership, um, I don't know what division that puts Williams in. Do they, do they like with with Scunthorpe or I, I don't know. <laughs> um, one thing with Williams, I mean, there's the the, the point that's been made that that they're not they're, they're they're too big to take the advantages of teams like Haas that you're talking about, but too small to be able to compete with, mm. um, obviously the, the the Premier League uh, teams. Um, uh, uh, they're caught in a bit of a no man's land, aren't they? They are, and this is this is the big challenge for uh, the framing of the 2021 regulations that um, Liberty and the FIA have to address. Whether you can. Uh, make it more even where you can make it realistic for an independent team to be able to get somewhere close or occasionally challenge uh, these teams for race wins and podiums um, it's it's not at the moment um, so yeah I mean Williams is caught between two stools uh, but it's all all the teams are to a, a all the, the independent teams are to a greater or lesser extent. It's it's how much how much do you surrender and become a a client team to a, a major manufacturer, and how much do you fight to retain your core independence? And Williams is on the independent very much on the core independent side um, at the moment, and Haas is the other extreme, and somewhere in between is probably Force India. Mm-hmm. Or whatever it's going to be called now. <laughs> <laughs> that was a story, wasn't it? Um, I mean, what a what a what a rescue as well. D- yeah, yeah, complicated though, <laughs> um, and it's still not. The story's probably still not finished yet in terms of the repercussions and you know who gets what money and it, 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 it's it's ongoing that one. Um, but yeah, fantastic. Uh, it was basically too good a team to. To go down, it's finished fourth on the constructors two years and two years, the previous two years running. Um, it always, always delivers a very, very uh, impressive performance for you know, a team of 
quarter of the size of the the, the big the biggest ones. Um, it was too good to be let go. It, it had too much uh, previous success. So, uh, yeah, it was fantastic that it was rescued, but it's um, it's it's got a bit messy and it, it, it's not untangled yet. And, and do, do you think it was the, the right decision to allow the, the the newly named team to continue with the same with well with the points and that the, 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 its previous incarnation had accrued? Uh, it, it, I don't think there's a right and wrong. I think it just got so tangled up in Formula One's own um, intricate rules and regulations, and there's always a situation that somebody's never thought of um, where a solution is made more difficult than it ought to be. Um, I don't think there's particularly a right and wrong, but you can absolutely understand how saying, "Well, hang on, if this is a if this is a new team, how come it gets um, money straight away, and we have to wait until you know we've completed three years?" Um, it's a valid question. Um, so, yeah, but it it it's just a function of the you know, reams and reams of regulations that uh, Formula One's ended up yeah, Form- having. Formula- Formula One but getting tangled up in its own rules and regulations yes uh, I, I, I know it's quite a <laughs> shocking theory isn't it it's um, a shocking but, uh, just, yeah just, just, uh, just let it sink in <laughs> <laughs> right um, deep breath uh, McLaren um, yeah. wh- what, what went what went wrong um, who's to blame where can it go from there uh, I mean there's a lot of big McLaren fans certainly in our office um, I mean, what's your take on it, Mark? It was um, it's a combination of combination of errors, a uh, combination of uh, not recognising uh, problems and hiding behind uh, the assumption that the shortfall in the past had been down to the engine. Um, actually, that what was happening was that the, the whole game was moving on, particularly in the aerodynamic simulation. And although they, the team may have been operating at, at a, a similar standard to what it had been when it was successful, the, the, the rest of the field was moving on, certainly at the, 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 at the front. Um, but specifically, there was a tale of um, clashing personalities on the, the technical side, um, which I think wasn't recognized quickly enough and I think probably arose as a consequence of the lack of consistent leadership over the years because Ron got Ron Dennis got involved in you know the boardroom fights and lost his focus on the, the, the stuff that makes the the, the the team be able to produce a fast car um, and then there's change of ownership and more boardroom shuffling and so it's been a very disruptive place over the years and I think this is it finally came home to roost with this car so they get engine parity with Red Bull and they went into that season you know, thinking, great, we we can show that we're as good as Red Bull. And, of course, they were nowhere near Red Bull. They began the season a second off Red Bull and ended up probably two seconds off Red Bull. And in, as they retained their same level of performance, everybody else went forward and they just sunk down to the back. Um, aerodynamically, it was uh, it was flawed. It, they, they, they tried to enhance some of the things of the previous year's car, which actually wasn't a bad car. It, was, it wasn't great, but it, was, it wasn't flawed in the way this one was. Um, and they've basically it took them half a season to work it out, but it, it, it just could not retain uh, the downforce through a, a, a long corner. 
um, it, the, 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 the would it would give the car um, very unstable uh, rear. And so the only way you could calm the car down and make it drivable, if you, if you looked on board, it was very drivable. Um, and you, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, what's the problem? Why is it so slow? And the, but that, that came as, as a, a function of a, a big, big rear wing that they had to put on, a much bigger rear wing than they would have ever had to have simulated to, to give it the rear stability because the rest of the car wasn't working aerodynamically. And, of course, that made it extremely aero inefficient. It was just dog slow down the straights to give it any sort of drivability at all. And that was probably good enough to be upper end of Q2, lower end of Q3 at the beginning of the season, but it barely got you out of Q1 at the end of the season. Given all of what you've just said, I think that some of Fernando Alonso's performances would beyond extraordinary yeah absolutely um he, he kept he kept them in play um you know the early early part of the season when it was uh, a mid-grid car he, he was just fifth and seventh places just just automatically just racking up those points and then as it, it as the car fell down the order you could still grab some places just out of thin air sometimes you could just you know magically conjure something um, just, just that relentless performance that we've seen all you know through his career. He just he never he never surrenders and um, always fights. Um, where do you think? Uh, if I could just turn turn the attention to, um, I might come back to Alonso actually, but um, to Zach Brown, uh, some uh, under pressure. Do you think as as the um, as the chief executive of of, of McLaren? Um, uh, I should say that he's also chairman of, of one of Motorsport Magazine's rivals, um, Autosport uh, Magazine. Um, but do you think he's under pressure um, uh, internally, Mark? <laughs> Under big pressure at Autosport, I don't think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. No, um, I think he's probably got a, a year or two of grace left. I think um, the, 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 the switch from Honda to Renault uh, proved to be uh, not, not a great one. Uh, it cost, cost money for arguably performance neutral um, and left them... Uh, as as a as a non-works team, uh, that 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 probably, in hindsight, that wasn't a great call, um, but it was unfortunate that 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 was happening at the same time as the the personnel problems in the technical department that I talked about earlier in terms of the aerodynamics. Um, I think it's reasonable that it's taken him this long to to get his. Um, to get a, a grasp around it, and I think he's probably got a, a year or two of grace. Um, but yeah, ultimately, everyone's under pressure to, to perform, and, and you know, McLaren isn't isn't a team that that it's acceptable to to be at its current level. And um, uh, just going back to Alonso briefly, um, uh, Rob, what, what do you think about um, Formula One failing to hold on to him? I mean. Uh, we don't have. We're not blessed with too many star drivers. Alonso was certainly one. Do you think they should or, or could have tried harder to to hang on to him? Um, <laughs> I think F F one's got much larger problems, and whether it just wants to hang on to one of its star drivers or not, in in truth, um, the is the issue with Alonso is a very combative driver, um, and I always understood that was the reason that that Red Bull pretty much 
wouldn't want him. Um, he's had his time at Ferrari. So, I mean, where was he honestly going to go? Um, I mean, this this year, actually, as a as a long-time McLaren fan, personally, um, I actually got more and more angry with McLaren as, as the season went on because the progress stopped because they had to make compromises. But for year after year, we've had a lot of bluster about things are going to get better. We're going to win with Honda. I mean, Ron Dennis's era was always about promising wins and usually, admittedly and fairly, delivering them. Um, Zach obviously changed focus now to say, look, we're on a recovery and this is, this is going to take time. Well, how much time is it going to take? And the first thing that you said was, well, we're going to switch to Renault because well, that's a safe option. Well, in this, in this occasion, the safe option hasn't worked out well. And the unsafe option, if you like, in their minds, Honda is now going to be with Red Bull. And if Red Bull managed to pull it out, um, then that would be great. But uh, I don't know really is the answer what, what they could have done with Alonso. Because if you were Fernando Alonso, a truly world-class, brilliant driver, would you honestly want to be exiting in Q3 or Q2 every weekend? It's just, it's just demoralising, isn't it? So, I mean, you can go to the World Endurance Championship and essentially win as one of only two cars that can win, um, which is the stark opposite. But it, it's rocking a hard place in my view. I have half a feeling that if MotoGP promoter Dorna was in charge of Formula One, that moves would have been made to keep, uh, you know, the, the, you see the way that Rossi goes on for years and years and years, and he's still quick. Um, but Dorna seems to have a way of keeping the big names in, you know, in the paddock somewhere. Um, I, do, I just, I know Formula One doesn't operate in the same way, but uh, I'd, I'd love to know in a parallel universe with Dorna in charge of F1, whether, whether Alonso would have stayed. Depends what I'm. I'm not. I will probably be vilified for this, but two wheels. You'd need to strap two of them together for me to take too much of <laughs> too much notice. So I'm not in in the loop with MotoGP. But presumably the competitive order there is a hell of a lot closer than it is in Grand Prix racing, where we've currently got I don't know four and a half cars that could potentially win a race um, out of a field of twenty, and that field of twenty seems to always shrink um, as the years go by. So. If we can, uh, well, we can just finish up the, on the McLaren topic with a question from uh, Chin Thaka Priyasad. I hope I pronounced that right. I, I, His real name's um, Kevin Smith. I've <laughs> 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 just done this to test me. Um, uh, simple question: um, What are your thoughts on McLaren's chances for next season? I mean, I think we've we've touched on it, but but Mark, w w what do you think? Uh, I mean, are we going to see a resurgent McLaren, or is the the best we can hope for that they uh, stabilise and, and and kind of hold position? I, I think they will um, return to respectability. I, I think as a, a basic building foundation, if you like, for the future. Um, I think the more obvious um, flaws uh, uh, that there were uh, in, inherent in this car uh, and, and what caused them and the, what processes caused caused them to find themselves in this this cul-de-sac that they couldn't get out of it in terms of the car have been understood and yeah when you listen to the engineers they explain it it, it, sort of, it sort of makes sense it's got a logic to it and you quite believe that that's you know that that's fixable um but it's it still leaves them as a a, a non a non-factory team and relying on an engine supplier that in five years of the hybrid formula is const consistently lagged a long way behind the best. So to to imagine that there might be 
up there contending for race wins, I, I think, is unrealistic. But um, the, the, there's no reason why they shouldn't be mid mid grid, upper upper mid grid, and respectable and scoring points. That raises another point, though, doesn't it? Of what exactly? Where is the level of acceptability when you're McLaren? You know, we're, we're not talking High, about higher than that. Because exactly. It, I mean, a, a lot. Yeah. I mean, I I would say uh, McLaren outside of the top eight is not particularly respectable because I grew up with them winning world championships and yep. and winning races and being essentially where Mercedes is. Um, yeah. So but, you you get that different benchmark, don't you, of respectability? So purely that just amplifies the pressure. Yeah, yeah. It, but it, at least it would be going in the right direction. And yeah, but that wouldn't. You couldn't just say, "Well, that's it. That's job done." It would it would still have to be moving upwards and ultimately looking to, as things are structured at the moment, to link in with the manufacturer once more and, and go forward from there. Um, Mark, uh, I have a question here. I know this is a subject close to your heart, uh, and this is uh, a question from uh, someone called F One Engineer. Um, why are the tires so bad? Are Pirelli capable of providing a better tyre for F1, or are they limited by the technology of the construction of the tyres? Yeah, it's my understanding is that it's to do with the manufacturing process that Pirelli uh, employs for these tyres, which um, is the it's very automated, and it's uh, it has to be. Uh, a relatively cheap way to produce them because of the the deal that um, that they the, the commercial side of the deal they, they, you know, they, it costs a lot of money to do uh, to be the tire supplier for Formula One so they have um, basically they're, they're extruded they, they're not sort of hand built like a traditional racing tire uh, and the, the chemicals needed to make it runny enough to be extruded or the chemicals that are the, the, the limiting factors in the tyre's behaviour. Um, so there's this sort of widespread misunderstanding between, uh, on the one hand, a, a tyre that can be raced hard, which will still see a reduction in performance as it wears, like a traditional tyre um, that we used to have from Bridgestone and Michelin, as opposed to a, a tyre that has to be kept at a, a certain temperature to stay in its performance window, which imposes a slow pace but a, a long stint which is what we have now so you can go softer on compound but which makes the tire faster at its peak but you still have to keep it in that um, temperature threshold so you have to drive it even slower so you, you get caught in this you get trapped in these one-stop uh, races in which the drivers aren't flat out um, so they they corrected this a couple of years ago but it's crept back in because as the the faster the cars have got, and particularly with the, when the, when they went to the wider body cars last year, um, the easier this threshold is is, is reached. So you, you've got it's a really intractable problem unless you know you can give us a completely different, more traditional type of tire, and that might require a very very different uh, commercial model in order to allow them to afford to do that. Mm. You know, if indeed they can. Was anyone other than Pirelli seriously in the frame? Do you think for the um, for, for, for the no for the Pirelli's contract? been confirmed. It's it's, uh, it's there until twenty twenty three. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
well, from from the minutiae of tyres, maybe we could pull back and just talk pretty generally, I suppose, a, a, about liberty and, and what we think about um, the relatively new owners. This was the season when I think a lot of people were hoping that some of the changes that liberty had talked about were, were going to kind of come to fruition or, or, or at least be, be visible. I mean, my sense is that it, it, it's been slightly underwhelming. Um, uh, Simon, what do you think? Have, has there been a significant change? I mean, will they need to do better? I mean, wh wh where are we with liberty at the moment? I, I, I applaud liberty's apparent will to change things. The problem I have is that 90% of the time when they issue a press release, I don't understand what they're telling me they're trying to change. Um, <laughs> it's all written in um, you know, sort of corporate gobbledygook. Um, and it's, and it's, it, it's streaming. I'd like to think that I've got a reasonable grasp of the English language, but um, that doesn't look like the English language. So, I mean, I think um, obviously they've got a lot of experience in with sport sports media sports operations but formula one operates in a very very different way to pretty much any, any other sporting model and i think it just yeah they, they need time to i i get the sense that because of the way that bernie had set things up um with you know so many interlinked little wheels and deals here there and everywhere um it's a bit. Of, it's a bit like trying to, you know, the problem the government presently has trying to work out how to do a Brexit. Um, it's a very, very complex. <laughs> it's a very incredibly complex structure, and I think they've probably been slightly surprised by the scale of that structure. I was going to say Brexit. The mention of Brexit will date this podcast, but I suspect it will. <laughs> no, no, even no, if you'll listen to it in two years' time, no, no, so, no, to be fair, so will the 2018 <laughs> season review time. Oh, well. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. But yeah, I mean, I. I um, I think we'd all like to see some of the stuff that seemed so obvious in the Bernie era, like making having some kind of digital presence, which you just didn't. I mean, there was it was non-existent in Bernie's era. Formula One, they had a website, but it had very little digital presence. You've got all this fantastic action that you can do things with, and because the the TV the the foot the TV footage cost about a zillion pounds for 10 seconds or whatever if you wanted to use it and anything outside the Formula One broadcasts, uh, whatever the rate was, you know, it didn't appear anywhere. And there are all these things that could be done and I hope in time will be done to bring it to a bigger audience. But, I mean, we've had talk of a race in Miami. Hasn't happened. There's a new one coming up in Hanoi. Not a country with, in Vietnam, it's not a country with great motor racing heritage, but it's an interesting it's an interesting project. I'm looking forward to seeing quite where Liberty plans to take the sport, but I don't think it needs 25 races a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, my feeling is, I suppose, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, Mark, um, is, is that Liberty has, has kind of got itself caught in a, in a bit of a tricky position where it seems to have upset pretty much every, from circuits to the major teams um, to the uh, commercial rights holders for TV. Uh, it, it's kind of at one point or another throughout the season, it's, it's managed to um, aggravate all of those uh, sort of stakeholders, if you like. And um, it, it can sometimes gives the impression of being slightly isolated. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's acquired the sport at a time of real structural change. In terms of television audiences and what, how many people actually will 
in future be interested in watching cars go around a track. Um, I think it's it, it is uh, looking to the past to try and get clues, but the, the, the clues can't really come from the past. Um, I don't. It, it, it's less. It's a less rapacious owner than uh, CVC was, and it's more open-minded and it's better at marketing. Um, but I don't think it is fundamentally visionary in outlook. I think it is fundamentally just trying to steady the ship and keep the money coming in. And as as the model change is changing very very rapidly, um, so they're looking to see how they can move to a different area to to, to keep the the income coming in. Um, but I think the, uh, the it should be accepted that long term, commercially the sport will be inevitably smaller than it is, or smaller than it's been at its peak. And I think everything needs to be scaled down, and that's that's the biggest challenge that Liberty has. How you scale down something that has been um, based upon old old uh, technology, old, old uh, boom time economics. Um, the old model, um, which none, none of which no longer applies, and um, sort of Bernie got out just as that was sort of evolving away from his ability to control. It's fascinating. Uh, it's going to be interesting, isn't it, to see how it how it develops and, and as you say, how it evolves. But I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that Liberty didn't buy it as a diminishing sport, um, as you say, but. Um, uh, but listen, we, we are running up against our, our, our deadline. I just wanted to mention a couple of other things. W- one thing that hasn't been mentioned, and maybe Rob, I could throw this one to you, um, and maybe the fact that it hasn't been mentioned says it all, but Halo. Um, I mean, remember the beginning of the season, all the all the, the, the column inches written about it, the words spoken about it, the passionate arguments for and against it, and to my mind, it hasn't been an issue other than in potentially saving um, Charles Leclerc's life. I think it was one of those things that when the covers were pulled off of all the cars in January, everyone went, what the hell is that? It stands out appallingly. It might as well be covered in pink glitter. But then as soon as they went out to practice at Melbourne, it was Formula One and what halo. Um, the Leclerc thing showed that it's good. Um, I think almost indisputably. I was I was a little bit sceptical as to whether it actually did its job, but then you can go into micro minutiae about, okay, would the wheel have hit the hit the natural roll hoop or would it have done this? It's It's been shown that it did avoid a visor strike fairly recently. That's got to be a good thing. Um, I've got to say it worried me um, at Abu Dhabi seeing Hulkenberg upside down saying amusingly he was hanging there like a pig um, <laughs> we're, and then reporting fire and you think well thankfully marshals were there and it was great but we've yet to actually see any kind of real inversion fortunately I will say but I mean what happens if a car goes goes over into gravel somewhere like Catalonia at the back of the circuit how does the driver get out so I don't think it's a final design um, in terms of aesthetics actually I think Formula E has done quite a good job of making a car with the halo being particularly less noticeable in the design but then presumably they've seen what Formula One's done and had a blank sheet of papers to design a car anyway so they've had the the choice it's not just been plonked on top of a Grand Prix car um, I think it's it's always going to look better there will be the purists out there that say it's not needed but it has been any, anything that helps safety is a is a great thing, um, even if it looks a bit naff. <laughs> uh, 
Um, uh, and finally, to, uh, to to sort of round off this um, this this season review, uh, we've got a question here from, and I'm going to try and get this name right, um, uh, Abdella Al Quastani um, or Wistani. Um, uh, I offer this somewhat light-hearted question to the experts, um, uh, but maybe you could answer. Um, uh, from Lewis, Sebastian, Alonso, Kimi, Max and Ricciardo, which is the one quality you would take from each of these drivers? He missed uh, out Tazio Nivellari. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask you all individually, but maybe together we could pool our heads and, and uh, pool our thoughts and, and just come up with a, with a list of things that, that, that we really like about each of those drivers, what their strengths are, what their, their defining strength. Ricciardo's I, racecraft. I would like Kimi's liver. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all aspire to that. <laughs> not sure you'd want his liver after, uh, after the awards. Um, I, th I think Hamil Hamilton's relentless dedication is, is his biggest mm -hmm. quality, his, mm -hmm. his intense focus. Um, Mark, listen, f uh, final word from you as our Grand Prix editor. Um, how, how do you rate the 2018 uh, season? I mean, obviously, you've covered more than most people have had hot dinners. Um, but uh, <laughs> how do you rate it? Um, pretty good, but uh, room for improvement. And um, yeah, if, if we could see Ferrari achieving its full potential next year and Honda d d delivering for Red Bull, then yeah, then we might have a vintage season. Fantastic. Um, Rob? Mark, just out of interest, who's your money on for next year? Yeah, oh, I, I say Vettel every time and I always get it wrong. So. See, I, <laughs> I said that and you've now doomed me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say Vettel, it would just, you know, in, 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 in hope of, of change. Um, but uh, not not because I've got anything against Mercedes or Hamilton, just because we need a shake-up of the, you know, the order. Uh, and on on that note, I think we will have to uh, call uh, call an end to uh, this uh, 2018 season review. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Simon. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Um, there are more podcasts on the Motorsport Magazine uh, website, which you can uh, download. Uh, and we wish you a very happy Christmas and a very uh, merry New Year. And we'll see you back in the paddock in 2019. But for now, from all of us, goodbye. <laughs>